Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Last October, the brutal murder of the dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi inside his country's consulate in Istanbul shocked people around the world and led to calls for punitive action against Saudi Arabia and its crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Far from being ostracised by the international community, however, MBS, as the Crown Prince is known colloquially, is this week getting the red carpet treatment on a tour taking in Pakistan, India and China. Is this the start of the rehabilitation of the man many believe was behind Khashoggi's killing? Or will it be some time before MBS is welcomed back to Europe and the US? I'll be exploring those questions shortly with our Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen. But first this week, it's to Madrid, where last week Spain's Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez, called an early general election to take place on April 28th. Guy Hedgeco is on the line from the Spanish capital. Guy, Pedro Sánchez has been in his job for just eight and a half months, so why has he suddenly called this election? Well, he called the election because he was governing in a, mini- a minority. His socialist party only has uh, around a quarter of the seats in Congress. So ever since he came into power back in June... He has needed the support of various other parties, so parties on the left, like Podemos, for example, and also other nationalist parties, Catalan and Basque nationalists. Now, uh, the specific problem he had um, recently was he wanted to get his budget for 2019 through Congress, um, and there was a crunch vote last week. And um, the the, the, the parties that wouldn't support um, him were those Catalan pro-independence parties in the national parliament. So that's the Catalan Republican left and the, the Catalan Democratic Party. They withdrew their support for him um, and the, uh, the budget bill didn't get through. And as a result, Sanchez called elections. Um, that's, this is only the second time this has happened in, in modern Spanish democracy that the budget has failed and then elections have been called. But the reasons... Uh, for the withdrawal of that support by those Catalan nationalist parties were nothing to do with the budget itself because it it, it did actually increase, for example, investment in the Catalan region. It was seen as uh, a budget with um, quite a social tilt to it, um, which normally they would have uh, approved of. The reason they didn't back it was for for very uh, different political reasons. And those reasons were based on the broader Catalan debate and what they saw as a lack of willingness by Sanchez to seriously sit down and negotiate the Catalan question and specifically to take bolder measures with regard to Catalan prisoners and in particular the issue of a a referendum, a binding referendum on Catalan independence, which Pedro Sanchez refused to negotiate. So those are really the reasons why they withdrew their support. That triggered um, the, the end of the legislature um, and the calling of the elections. And Guy, it would be the, the third election in Spain in, in four years. And I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that Spain, in common with many European countries, has witnessed a, a decline in support for the, the main centre-left and centre-right parties, which had dominated prior to that. Could, could you give us a snapshot then of who the main players are going into this election? Well, that's right. I mean, it was a, a bi-party system really until four or five years ago. And um, we still have the obviously the Socialist Party, which is, has been in government, um, which has been leading polls uh, for the most part, and the popular party, the Partido Popular, which is a, a conservative party uh, on the right. Those are two parties you know, with relatively long traditions. Um, and then uh, behind those, in, it, well, in some polls, but just behind them, some polls uh, vying with them for prominence are Ciudadanos or Citizens, which is a relatively new party, which 
has been kind of shifting around the political spectrum, but which now seems to be somewhere on the right, somewhere near the popular party, and also Podemos, which is to the left of the Socialist Party. Now, a fifth party has emerged uh, really in recent months in terms of a, a being a prominent force on the, on the Spanish political landscape, and it's called Vox. It's a far-right party um, which has started to perform quite well in polls. In many polls, it's still sort of around 9 or 10 percent, um, but it has shot up in recent months. And it's a party which, although it uh, takes a, a stance against immigration and those classic sort of uh, far-right issues, it has very much based its uh, its success on taking a tough stance on the Catalan issue. And Guy, many of our listeners will know that Vox made a big breakthrough in December when it, it won seats in the regional election in Andalusia. Is it likely to replicate that success now across the country in this election? Well, that is a big question. And men, many people think that that is quite possible. Um, I mean, Andalusia does have, you know, certain idiosyncrasies. Um, you know, it's very much a socialist stronghold. It's a place where pretty much all the the immigrants who come from uh, from Morocco and sub-Saharan Africa, um, where, where they arrive at in Spain, because it's the southernmost region in Spain. Um, so it has a lot of immigration. So you could argue that it's a fertile place for a far-right anti-immigrant party. But there is a feeling that there's a possibility they could replicate that on a national level because um, there does seem to be a certain swing to the right. The um, the Popular Party has new leadership has, has, and seems to be sort of fairly invigorated by that leadership. Ciudadanos has moved to the right and, that, and we have Vox obviously um, doing well in polls. So there's a feeling that they might be able to make the numbers add up on a national level, possibly um, after this election in April. And on the left, um, Podemos is an interesting case, isn't it? And that party exploded onto the scene five years ago in the wake of the Indignados anti-austerity movement. You have a piece running today in the Irish Times and and on our website about about how things have gone very wrong for Podemos. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, Podemos was really the phenomenon um, of Spanish politics five years ago when it first emerged. um, And it really came out of nothing. And and it came at sort of the tail end of the... Um, of the Spanish economic crisis. Um, and, you know, that was a very good time for for those sort of demands that it was making. And, it, and it, it had a lot of support based on that kind of um, anger that came out of the economic crisis and, and anger at austerity. Um, it won 5 million votes uh, back in 2015. But since then, um, it's really, it's had a lot of problems. And a lot of those problems um, have been really to do with infighting within the party and disagreements and personal clashes, in particular between the party's leader, Pablo Iglesias, and the the man who was his number two, Inigo Erejón, but who has now, who was subsequently demoted and so moved away from the, um, the, 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 the seats of power at the top there. Um, and those two disagreed on, on how the party should present itself, whether it should be a sort of party that was essentially a party of protest or a party on the outside of the system, as Pablo Iglesias seemed to, seemed to want, or a party that was working from the inside and willing to uh, build alliances with other parties and be a more sort of mainstream establishment kind of political force, as Erejón wanted. And so they, they had this very public falling out. Um, there have been other um, sort of personal clashes as well. Um, within Podemos in recent months, which have been very damaging. Um, so there is this, they have this image now as a party which seems to be kind of permanently at war with itself, even though they you know, they still have sub- substantial support. But in polls, they seem to be um, lagging behind Ciudadanos, somewhere in fourth place. 
Um, and also they've had other issues. For example, um, the Venezuelan crisis has been a very live issue in Spain because there's a very big um, Venezuelan population in Spain, particularly in Madrid. Spain has very close ties to Venezuela. Um, and Podemos has extremely close ideological ties and in some cases personal ties to the, the Chavista regime in um, in Venezuela. And so many of uh, Podemos' critics have been using that against it to say, you know, this is uh, this is what happens when when the kind of policies that you advocate are taken to an extreme. Um, so that has been something of a hindrance um, as well for Podemos. Is all of that good news or bad news, Guy, for the Socialist Party? And the reason I'm, I'm asking the question like that is, would the Socialists expect to pick up votes that Podemos uh, lose and, and maybe gain from, from Podemos' difficulties? Or does it need a strong Podemos party uh, to have a chance of building some kind of coalition on the left? Well, it's a good question because I think, you know, normally you would think that it, that would be good for the Socialists and they would benefit from that. And I think maybe to some extent they do benefit from, from the lack of support for Podemos and they can pick up some votes. But the, the main feeling is that certainly in Spain on the left, when people stop voting for a party like Podemos, they often stop voting altogether. You know, they, they, they lose their, their motivation to vote for any party. And so they won't necessarily shift to the socialists who would be the, the, you know, the logical party for them to shift their support to. And instead they just stay at home when it comes to election day. And of course, as you say, the socialists need now a strong Podemos party because they are not going to be able to um, to govern on their own um, unless they, the socialists score an extraordinary uh, victory on April the 28th. Um, it looks very unlikely. What looks more likely is that the socialists win, but without getting a majority. And their natural ally at the moment is Podemos. Podemos have been um, their main ally for the last eight months. They're not in a coalition together, but Podemos have been supporting them. Um, and so the socialists do need a strong Podemos, not a, not a Podemos that is so strong enough to overtake the socialists, but the socialists certainly want a, a Podemos that is strong enough to give them a majority in Congress. And at the moment, it doesn't look as if Podemos are strong enough to do that. The issue of Catalan independence, Guy, as you explained at the outset, was central to the fall, if you like, of, of this government. Does it follow that Catalan independence would, would be a major issue in this campaign? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be in a way, the only issue. Um, I think certainly the parties on the right want that to be the case. They're going to focus almost exclusively on the territorial debate. I think um, the parties on the left are going to want to talk about other things. You know, Certainly the socialists are going to want to talk about the economy and the fact that although it's not doing amazingly, it is doing better than most other countries in Europe. Um, unemployment is still quite high, 14, 15%, but it is still, it is coming down from where it was in the middle of the economic crisis. Um, there are other issues that the left would like to talk about, for example, gender equality. But I think the parties on the right are really going to try and come back to the issue of Catalonia. And I think it is going to, to dominate. Um, and it's a very polarized debate at the moment. You know, the parties on the right um, have already, they, they've started campaigning already and they've started talking about, um, certainly the conservatives in the last day or two have been talking about how they would like to introduce direct rule and a tough direct rule in Catalonia the moment they get into power after the, the April election. So they're talking a very tough game at the moment, all three uh, parties on the right when it comes to Catalonia. And it, it's a difficult one for the socialists and for Podemos. They have more moderate stances on this issue. Um, and 
those stances can be uh, can make it difficult for them to win uh, votes on this. The election is taking place against the backdrop of the trial in Madrid of, of 12 Catalan leaders involved in the 2017 bid for independence and that presumably will be dominating news media over the next few weeks and that's not going to help to calm the terms of the debate. No, not at all. I mean, it, it has it coincided with the, the end of the legislature, with the calling of the elections um, and it has really... Um, come at a time when when the the relationship between Madrid and Catalonia was at a pretty low ebb once again and it it kind of uh, exaggerated those those tensions uh, even further with the beginning of the trial um so it, it it's it's a difficult one for the the socialist government um, because it, it has been focused on the idea of calming tensions with Catalonia over the last few months that clearly doesn't seem to have worked the fact that the trial is going on and will probably still be going on when the election takes place, is only going to add to those tensions. When you've got uh, senior Catalan leaders, those those Catalan politicians who are involved in the failed independence bid of 2017, appearing in court live on TV every day with the election campaign running. I mean, that's 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 unprecedented. We haven't seen anything like that in Spain. We haven't seen a trial like this in Spain that's so uh, politically tense and politically fraught in in modern Spanish history. So there's all sorts of baggage here stacked up ahead of this uh, this election um and the the, the trial is um is adding to that uh, that baggage and that tension enormously and and the catalan independent party's guy that brought down the government by refusing to support the budget they would have done so knowing that they were increasing the risk of a far more uh, of a right-wing government um replacing sanchez's government and Okay, he didn't give them everything they wanted, but certainly he was more conciliatory towards them than than his predecessor Rajoy was, and 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 then his successors may well be. So, what do you think their thinking was there? Well, I mean, a lot of people have talked about this and, and why they did this, and you know, th- their argument is that you know, just from uh, on principle, they they couldn't back a government that was not willing to sit down and talk about, for example, this this Scotland-style referendum on independence. So, if the government was not going to talk about that, then they would they were just not willing to. Um, to back it. But yeah, in practical terms, this would appear to open the door to a right-wing government, a government which who, who the parties uh, of which are already talking about reintroducing direct rule. So it would seem like a, you know, almost a self-defeating decision. Now, um, there is a theory that you often hear that um, some factions or many factions within the, the Catalan independence movement have this idea that they almost they want to provoke a reaction from Madrid. This is a, certainly a theory that um, the, the the more um, exaggerated the response of the authorities in Madrid to the Catalan independence movement, um, the more um, heavy-handed the reaction is by the authorities in Madrid, the better it is for the independence movement because that draws attention to their plight um, to the way they're being treated um, in the eyes of the rest of the world. And the Catalan independence movement is extremely sensitive to what other countries in Europe and what the rest of the world thinks about this situation. And they are very upset that there hasn't been more response, for example, from the European Union. So there is a school of thought that they are hoping that you know perhaps if a right-wing government comes in, it will um, almost behave in an, ex- in an exaggerated fashion, a heavy-handed fashion, which will... Um, show um, how wrong Madrid is and how right the Catalan independence movement is. That's the theory. Um, but you could simply see this as um, a purely parliamentary issue, whereby um, these two parties thought, well, you know, uh, Pedro Sanchez didn't give us what we wanted. 
um, so we're not going to support him. A, a very sort of short-term, admittedly, point of view. Um, but you know, opinion is divided on why exactly they did this. Finally, Guy, I think it's clear that no single party will emerge with a, an overall majority in this election. So if that is the case, what are the possible combinations then that may emerge? Well, it looks very difficult for a, a left-wing government to emerge from this, um, unless somehow Podemos can um, can campaign extremely well and and manage to form a majority with the socialists. That looks unlikely, but not impossible. Um, another possible option would be the socialists teaming up with Ciudadanos. Um, so a kind of centrist um, coalition there or centrist government. Um, but Ciudadanos, uh, just this week, have already said officially that they would not support a socialist government. So it looks as if that is ruled out. But Ciudadanos have, have said that kind of thing before. They said it with the, the government. They said it with the uh, with Mariano Rajoy um, a few years back that they would not support him. And they ended up supporting him in government. So I think you have to take what they say with a slight pinch of salt. But it's looking unlikely that there'd be a centrist government after this election. What's looking more likely is a right wing government. So the Popular Party with Ciudadanos perhaps needing the support of the far right Vox. That looks more likely at the moment. But it's quite possible that we don't have any of those scenarios and simply we have the kind of paralysis that we saw throughout most of 2016 when there was so much fragmentation, so much disagreement that a government was not able to be formed for several months. And we had a kind of paralysis uh, for most of that year. That is another quite strong possibility. Guy, thanks for that. Thanks a lot, Chris. Pleasure. That was Guy Hedgeco, our correspondent in Madrid. And no doubt we'll be talking to Guy again between now and that election on April 28th. It's to the Middle East now and the story about the apparent rehabilitation of the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is this week on a tour of Pakistan, India and China, where he is being warmly welcomed, in spite of the scrutiny he has faced in recent months, over the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Michael Johnson, our Middle East analyst, joins me now from Nicosia. Michael, how significant is the timing of this tour being undertaken by MBS, as he's sometimes known, and what's he hoping to accomplish? It's difficult to work out why he has timed it to go at this time, because there are many things going on. There have been conferences and so on that he has not attended. He wasn't warmly welcomed when he went to the G20 meeting last November. The only person actually who welcomed him at that point was Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. Anyway, he knows that if he visits these three countries, Pakistan, India, and China, he will get a warm welcome because all of them have close financial and other ties with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Pakistan um, has received hefty financial transfers from Saudi Arabia, most recently $6 billion in order to uh, boost the country's um, foreign exchange reserves, which were running low. And does that explain, Michael, the welcome he received, just to mention that in Islamabad on Sunday? He got quite an extraordinary welcome there, didn't he? Yes, he did. He flew in in his plane into a military airport outside Islamabad uh, with escorts of uh, Pakistani military jets. He was met by the head of the army and also uh, greeted by the Pakistani Prime Minister, Imran Khan. And... um, He was um, hosted in the prime minister's residence, which has been turned into a guest house by uh, by Imran Khan. And he had banqueting and uh, many meetings with Pakistani businessmen and senior officials. So he had a very warm welcome in Pakistan. 
In India, the welcome will be a little less uh, spectacular. He's walking into a diplomatic minefield here, isn't he? Because tensions have suddenly escalated between Pakistan and, and India over Kashmir. Yes. Um, last week on the 14th of February, there was a uh, attack, suicide bomb attack, which killed um, 40 Indian um, military police in Kashmir. And then yesterday there was another attack which killed nine people, um, several of them um, soldiers and um, a couple of civilians and the bombers themselves. Uh, these attacks were carried out by a group which is based in Pakistan. And Pakistan has never done anything to prevent this group from taking action in Kashmir. So how do you think the Crown Prince will, will negotiate his way through this diplomatic minefield, as I just called it? Well, um, the Indians requested that he didn't arrive uh, from um, Pakistan and to uh, also to put the case to the Pakistani prime minister that he should rein in this group, which is carrying out these bombings and also claiming them. When the Pakistani prime minister and the Saudi crown prince issued a statement at the end of his visit, nothing was said about this. They both condemned terrorism, but nothing was said about these specific incidents. And this will disappoint the Indians. But anyway, he arrives in New Delhi tonight. They will discuss a host of issues, including trade and the provision of oil for India. India buys about 17% of its oil from, from Saudi Arabia. From India, he goes to China. And again, an, another diplomatic challenge, isn't it? Because China is cultivating ties with, with, with Iran, Saudi Arabia's arch enemy, and it's a signatory to the Iran nuclear deal. So what kind of challenges does that uh, pose for him? Well, it's the same thing. China is a very large importer of Saudi oil, and Saudi Arabia buys Chinese goods. The problem is they disagree over the Iran nuclear deal. Also, China has been courting Pakistan. Uh, and there's some kind of competition there. The thing is, the crown prince is being shunned in the Western capitals because of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi last October, and because the Saudis have not shown any kind of transparency in how they are dealing with the 15 people that they say are culprits involved in this killing. On top of this, uh, the crown prince's main advisor, who was supposed to have been the mastermind of the Khashoggi operation, his name is Saud al-Qahtani, remains in touch with the prince, although he has supposedly been fired from his job. But he also has many um, hats in the Saudi uh, administration, and he continues to work in these jobs. And do you think, Michael, does the, the West, you mentioned the, the West there, I'm wondering how this tour of his will be viewed in the West, because I suppose if there's a vacuum there, if, if, if they're not engaging with Saudi Arabia as much as they would have in the past, would there be concerns then that this is another opportunity for China maybe to step in into an area where the West might be losing influence? I don't think so. I don't think China can replace the West. I mean, uh, one has to remember that last year, early last year, he, uh, the Crown Prince made a very big visit to the United States, and he met people in Washington, the top people, and he was also um, celebrated by Hollywood stars and producers and taken to the oil fields in Texas and so on. 
and he had a you know very warm welcome. So the Khashoggi uh, murder has turned this off for some time, but it's uh, not likely to carry on for too much longer because the United States is still uh, cozying up to the crown prince. And um, the American uh, Secretary of State uh, went recently to Riyadh and had uh, discussions with him. And the crown prince also has been condemned in the West, and particularly in Europe, but not so much in the United States, for his for the conduct of the war in Yemen, which um, is uh, a disaster for both Saudi Arabia and the Yemenis, a disaster for Saudi Arabia because they can't uh, win the war, and for the Yemenis because their country is being destroyed. And where, Michael, do you see the U.S.-Saudi relationship now? Because we know we, we know that we've read reports that the CIA concluded that Ben Salman. Uh, was behind the murder of Khashoggi. We've seen a very strong reaction in Congress against him and against Saudi Arabia, but but the White House has been unstinting in its support of him, hasn't it? Yes, the White House has, and as I said, the Secretary of State Pompeo, he was recently in Riyadh. Other people have consulted with the Saudis as well, and the United States continues to support the Saudi-led coalition, which is bombing and marching troops across Yemen. The connection between Saudi Arabia and the United States remains strong, and it's a very long connection formed in 1945 by the grandfather of the crown prince. This connection is the longest connection the U.S. has with any country in the Middle East, Uh, and the United States has been proud of that connection, and they and the Saudis have cooperated in many things, including the Afghan war and including other major political problems in the area, not always very successfully. And do you think, Michael, then it's just a matter of time before uh, we again see uh, the Crown Prince turning up in Western capitals and and receiving the red carpet treatment there? Yes, uh, this will happen. I mean, people forget quite quickly. And if Khashoggi himself had not been a correspondent for the Washington Post, he, he would have been forgotten already. I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't have made such a big story. But the Washington Post uh, pressed the issue and investigated and forced other people to investigate. There were reports around late last year that there was a push among other princes, members of the, the Saudi royal court, to essentially force the king to clip Ben Salman's wings and to kind of stop him in his tracks in light of not just the Khashoggi murder, but the, the Yemeni war, which you mentioned. Um, there was a corruption clampdown in which lots of Saudi Arabia's richest and most powerful men were rounded up and, and, and detained in a hotel for a long period and so on. Are, are we to take it now from this tour? Is, is this evidence really that he retains the confidence of the king, King Salman, and that he will succeed him to the throne? I think so. I mean, the, he is the king's favourite son. And he was, he actually uh, stuck to the king when his brothers and so on went abroad to study. He remained in Riyadh and he studied there. And he has been advising the king and um, remaining beside the king throughout the king's uh, career, first as governor of Riyadh and then crown prince and now king. And the king is not very well. Um, He's uh, thought to be somewhat senile. Uh, it's very unlikely that he will um, turn against his son. The only way his wings would be clipped would be as if other members of the family tried to sideline the king. 
but that hasn't happened so far, and it hasn't stopped uh, a the crown prince from uh, going ahead with uh, arrests and uh, suppression of opposition, and it hasn't stopped him from pursuing the war in Yemen, uh, which is no nearer a ceasefire or any kind of uh, resolution than it has been for the past uh, four years. Michael, thank you. That's all for this week. Thanks again to both of our guests today, Guy Hedgeco in Madrid and Michael Jansen in Nicosia. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.